Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 1, verse 35. We are in Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, a series where we're walking through the life of Christ in a chronological fashion, verse by verse, uh, but we're, we're doing it where we're harmonizing the Gospels. We began this series a year ago when Deemer was here, right? Deemer, you'll be happy to know we're in Mark chapter 1, all right? So uh, we're getting there. It's just taking a little while. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 is where we're going to be today. Um, and this passage of Scripture follows where Jesus has been in Galilee. He is, his Galilean ministry has taken off. He has been preaching in the synagogues, casting out demons, healing lots of people. And then we come to today's passage. So please stand, if you would, as we read this passage of Scripture. Praise God that His Word never fails. This Word we're reading right here is an infallible Word. It never fails. The grass withers. The flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Illustrations fail, but God's word never fails. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. We're going to read through verse 39. The word of the Lord says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. I ask, Lord, right now that you would grant me the grace to speak it rightly and to um, preach it in a way that brings you glory and honor. I don't want to just... Um, look at this text and come up with my own creative thoughts as to what it should mean or what I want it to mean. Lord, I want to preach what it says, how it says it, and what you're communicating through this text, what Mark was trying to communicate as you inspired him and wrote these words down. And Lord, I pray for the grace for all of us in here to have ears to hear your word, because apart from your spirit opening up our ears and enabling us to hear, Lord, we'll just hear whatever we want to hear. So God, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This text today, um, it may seem a little um, uh, just sort of just kind of thrown in there to some people as they go through the gospel here. But this is a very, very important text. And there's three, it breaks down real easily into three parts. There's Jesus praying, then there's the disciples looking, and then there's Jesus' response. So it breaks down real easily into three parts, and that's going to be basically our structure today. So I'm going to go ahead and give you our outline for the message today, all three points, if you will. They're all uh, fit into one sentence. So in your notes there, there's one sentence that you have in your notes, and I'm going to go ahead and give you all the blanks for those, and then we're going to break that sentence into three parts and walk through this passage in that way. So here, here are, are your notes. We must see, or let us see and savor the truth that Jesus made prayer his priority— Therefore, he was able to resist public pressure and maintain preaching as his principal aim. Let us see and savor the truth that Jesus made prayer his priority. Therefore, he was able to resist public pressure and maintain preaching as his principal aim. Mark 1, verse 35 says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Rising very early, literally a great while before day is what the Greek reads, while it was still dark. In other words, Jesus was getting up to pray, 
During the time when the light had not yet broken through the darkness, the time when most people were still in their beds, Jesus got up to pray. Now, this is even more impressive when we consider the context here. Remember, Jesus and his uh, disciples had been walking from town to town preaching, town to town in Galilee preaching. They didn't have a car to go from town to town. They walked. For example, between uh, Capernaum and Cana, it was 20 miles. And so they would walk these different mileages between these towns. And so Jesus and his disciples had to be exhausted, simply physically exhausted, from the rigors of the type of ministry that Jesus was involved in. And you also remember that the prior day, prior to this text, Jesus had been preaching in the synagogue. Now, I know this may be hard for some of you to believe, but preaching is a very tiring thing. R.C. Sproul once said that the amount of energy that goes into one normal sermon preached in a, I guess in what would be a, an average sort of way, uh, it equals the amount of energy for an eight-hour eight workday. And so preaching is very exhausting. So Jesus was preaching in the synagogue. And if you'll remember, his preaching was interrupted by a demon-possessed man, and Jesus cast out that demon. Now, I remember saying that obviously it wasn't much of a battle, but it still had to be emotionally draining, spiritually draining to Jesus. It had to be interrupted in the middle of his sermon to deal with this demon. It was quite an interesting Sabbath day. And then at sundown, at sundown, because... Uh, the Jews didn't believe in doing any work on the Sabbath, and the Jewish day went from sundown to sundown. So at sundown, they began to bring to Jesus all the people that needed to be healed. They brought him all the people that needed to be healed, all those who needed to have demons uh, cast out of them. So at sundown on the previous day, Jesus begins to heal, and we read in Mark that it was a massive amount of healing he did. He healed all who came to him. So he was healing. We don't know how late into the night it went, but obviously this was a big task that Jesus was involved in. So I think we can safely assume that Jesus was tired. Now, even though Jesus' divinity has been on display in these early miracles and these incidents in Galilee, we must not lose sight of his humanity. He tired. He got drained. So he needed sleep, and he did sleep. Therefore, He had to battle exhaustion, just like you and I, when he chose to get up before the Son to seek his Father in prayer. In his humanity, Jesus required sleep, but more than that, he required consistent communion with his Father in prayer, just like we do. Even the fact that Jesus is praying demonstrates his humanity. I mean, think about this. It's absolutely amazing if we let our minds ponder it. Jesus prayed. Jesus needed to be about prayer. Jesus, the one by whom all things were created. The one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. The one who is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The one who upholds the universe and everything in it by the word of his power. Jesus, in his humanity, was himself upheld by his Father, and therefore needed to commune with his Father in prayer. Prayer was a consistent part of Jesus' life. You look in the Gospels and you see Jesus praying all the time about all kinds of different things. The Gospel of Luke especially focuses on prayer. Jesus demonstrated urgent, persistent, consistent, and passionate prayer. Now, why did Jesus pray so much? Well, certainly to be in communion with his Father, as I just mentioned. Now, the the Trinity did not cease to exist when the Son took on flesh and came to dwell among us. Jesus said, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. That perfect fellowship within the Godhead continued. But in the flesh, Jesus demonstrated his desire to commune with his Father in prayer. So Jesus 
prayed in order to be in communion with his father, but Jesus also demonstrated in prayer a total submission to his father. He desired to only submit to his father's will and not be swayed, as we'll see here in a bit, by the will and the whims of others. John 5.30 says, I seek not my own will, this is Jesus speaking, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus also demonstrated in his prayer life a total reliance upon his father. He unwaveringly trusted his father for everything, even when others abandoned him. In John 16.32, Jesus would say, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. He's speaking to his disciples. Each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus relied upon the strength that his Father provided. Jesus also in prayer demonstrated not only communion and submission and reliance, but also that he was seeking guidance from his Father. He not only desired to do his Father's will, he perfectly sought out how to accomplish his Father's will. John 8, 28. Jesus said to them, when you lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus always did the things that pleased the Father. He sought the Father because He wanted to be in communion with His Father. He wanted to be in submission to His Father. He wanted to rely upon His Father. And He wanted guidance from His Father. Jesus needed to pray. Now, If the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power needed to pray, how much more do we? How much more do we need to be brought into communion with our Father through prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How much more do we need to be in submission to our Father? Your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How much more do we through prayer need to express our total reliance upon our Father? Give us this day our daily bread. How much more do we need guidance from our Father? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And on top of all that, we, unlike Jesus, also need to be in prayer constantly, consistently, with great unction, because we, unlike Jesus, are in need of confession for our many, many, many sins. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. My friends, Jesus not only taught us how to pray, he lived it for us. Let us be like the disciples who, upon seeing their master's consistent, powerful prayer life, said in Luke 11:1, 1, Lord, teach us to pray. Come to Jesus' school of prayer. Friends, you don't need the latest fads and methods of prayer. No circle making, no Jabez wishing. Simply come to the master and see and savor the Lord who prayed. It's all you need. Come and learn all we need to learn from Jesus. We learn from Jesus that we must make time for prayer. We must be disciplined. Now, we do not need to get legalistic about Uh, specifically praying at a specific time of the day. However, I do think we see examples from Scripture that giving God the first fruits of your day is the wisest thing to do. King David did it, Psalm 88, 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you, in the morning my prayer comes to you. You go and look at all the great men and women of faith throughout church history, and you'll see men and women who met the sunshine on their knees. But the time of day isn't as important as simply making sure you set aside quality time for prayer. Quality time, meaning you do it in a quiet place. He says here that he departed and went out to a desolate place, literally a deserted place. It was quiet. Now the moms are looking at me in here saying, 
quiet. Yeah. Whatever. Well, you know what, husbands? It's your job to make sure your wives have a time set aside, a quiet place for them to be able to pray. It is your job to either work out your work schedule to where you can have enough time in the morning, where you can take the kids, feed them breakfast, whatever you need to do so she has that time. Or the first thing when you get home, you say, honey, you go have the quiet space you need. Take as long as you need. I got the kids. Husband, that's on you. That challenge is on you. So Jesus was in a quiet place, and he was also alone. It's not just a quiet place. It's a place of solitude. Private prayer is immensely important to our spiritual health. Do we need to pray with others? Yes. Do we need to pray corporately as a church? Yes, absolutely. But we should also be about the discipline of private prayer. Why? Because private prayer saves us from hypocrisy. Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, this is Jesus speaking, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will will reward you. So Jesus demonstrates this for us. He finds this quiet place of solitude. And he had no hypocrisy to deal with. The scriptures say this. God says this about the Son in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Friends, the Father upheld the Son as he walked in sinless flesh. How much more do we need to be upheld in our sin-ridden flesh by our Father? How much more do we need to be dependent upon God? Friends, listen. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. You know, we think about our nation's declaration of independence. We call it a declaration of independence. We talk about Independence Day. You know what they call it in England? Rebellion. My friends, you know what God calls your prayerlessness? Rebellion. Rebellion. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. That's all our prayerlessness is. Pure and simple, sinful rebellion against the one who gives us every breath. Our culture values self-sufficiency, stories of those who have made it on their own. Back during the political season, both political parties would get somebody up on the stage who would tell their story. I came here with nothing but my left shoe, and now I've worked my way up to the CEO of whatever. And everyone went hurrah and said, yes, that's the American dream. That's what our culture says. Make much of yourself. You're self-dependent. You are independent. But Jesus demonstrates God's sufficiency, not self-sufficiency, and a life of total and absolute dependence upon his Father. Friends, without prayer, life's twists and turns, both good and bad, will be impossible for you to navigate. We don't want to pray because we want to think that we can handle those twists and turns. Now, in Jesus' case here, we're not sure exactly what he was praying in this prayer, but from the context, we can get some clues. For we see that he is facing some big decisions and a lot of pressure. So I want to see the second point of the message. Not only should we see and savor the truth that Jesus made prayer his priority, I want us to see that he did it because so he could resist public pressure. See and savor the truth that Jesus made prayer his priority, therefore he was able to resist public pressure. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. 
So, so here's the scene. Jesus, he gets up in the morning. He tiptoes to a desolate place, to a deserted place, to be alone with his father. He probably had to step over the sleeping disciples. By the way, this wouldn't be the last time the disciples slept while Jesus prayed. But when the disciples do awake, they are startled not to see him. So Mark tells us in verse 36, they went searching for him. They searched for him. Now this is, this is pretty tame in our translation, the word search here. But, but it's not just some leisurely looking around like, hey, I wonder where Jesus is. Ah, oh, there you are, Jesus. No, this word here in the Greek is a compound intensified verb meaning to hunt. Matter of fact, it actually means to hunt with indignation. In other words, the disciples were a bit miffed that Jesus isn't there, so they go like paparazzi and hunt him down to get him back to where he needs to be, or where they think he needs to be. Luke even tells us that the crowd was hunting him. In Luke's account, it says the people sought him. So when you take the two gospel accounts together, it forms kind of this image of Simon sort of leading the charge here with the other disciples, and then the crowd behind them as they go out searching for Jesus, like an angry group of indignant people combing the area for a straying child. And when they find him, they scold him. Verse 37. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. As a kid, did you ever get lost or, or you just strayed away from your parents and, and then maybe at a family reunion or something and then everyone's searching around for you. Your mom finds you and she grabs you by the arm and says that exact thing. What are you doing? Everybody's been looking for you. All right? And, and so I think that's sort of the image here. They're find, they find Jesus and say, what are you doing? Everybody is looking for you. Every time Mark uses that verb, looking, in the, in the gospel of Mark, every time, every single time he uses it, it uh, refers to looking with wrong motives, looking with ill intent. Every time Mark uses that. So he uses it here. When he, when he gives us this account and the people looking for Jesus, they, they weren't just, oh, I hope we can find Jesus. They were angry. They were mad that he wasn't where they wanted him to be. In the disciples' eyes, there was an urgent work that needed to be done. Jesus, what are you doing here? Don't you see the crowds? My friends, Jesus knew how to balance a very busy life without being driven by busyness. He was hard-pressed all the time. He had to get in boats to preach. He had to get in boats to get away from the crowds. There was one time that he and the disciples sat down to eat, and they couldn't even eat because the crowd came pressing in on them. Jesus was busy. Jesus worked hard. But Jesus never bowed to the idol of busyness. Or urgency. He didn't let the tyranny of the urgent command when or where he did what he did. So urgency didn't drive Jesus. But it wasn't just the urgency that caused the indignation here among the disciples and the people. They, they, there were other things. You see, the people feared that Jesus might be trying to leave them. Luke gives us a clue into their motives in Luke chapter 4, verse 42. This is Luke's account of the same story. It says, And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. They wanted to keep him from leaving. Jesus was in demand. He was successful. He was popular. From the disciples' perspective, ministry had just now become successful. Look at the crowds, Jesus. The disciples were always falling prey to their sinful flesh and worldly perspective on things. To them, Jesus was about to blow a great opportunity. Right up until Jesus' death even, they had their eyes on worldly glory. Remember Mark 8? In Mark chapter 8, Jesus clearly says that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified and rise again in three days. I mean, you can't get much clearer than what he says to the disciples. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. You can't say that, Jesus. 
Because Peter didn't have his eyes on heavenly things, he had his eyes on earthly things. And then in Mark chapter 9, if, you, if you'll remember Mark chapter 9, or if you'll look it up later, you'll remember that the disciples were having a discussion while they were on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus says, hey, what were y'all talking about? And they didn't want to even admit to what they were talking about. They were talking about who was going to be the greatest. Because they had their eyes on earthly things and not heavenly things. And then in Mark chapter 10, James and John, with the help of their mama, come up and ask Jesus, hey, when you come strolling into Jerusalem and set up your kingdom, can my boys, can James and John have your your right hand and your left hand thrones? They didn't know what they were talking about because they had their eyes set on earthly things, not heavenly things. And the same thing is happening here and the same thing can easily happen to us. Urgency, success, popularity have derailed many a Christian man and woman and derailed many a church. Jesus handled the pressure of urgency, success, popularity with prayer. What a contrast to our our day and age. We, We live in the day and age of opinion poll leaders. And I'm not just talking about politics here. There are opinion poll pastors as well. What should we do? Let's see. Where should we go? Making their decisions based upon whatever's pressing in on them, whatever's urgent, whatever's popular, whatever's successful. Let's do this because, well, we need to, or let's do this because people like it, or let's do this because it works. Rarely are we asking, is it God's will? It's the day and age we live in. When we're driven by urgency and success and popularity, decisions end up not being made based upon the will of God, but upon the will of man. Man-centeredness trumps God-centeredness in that case. What we have in this passage is basically Jesus choosing the road less traveled, God-centeredness over man-centeredness. My friends, popularity and success is intoxicating. It's like a drug. Once we get hooked on it, it's hard to give it up. Churches all around this globe are hooked on the man-centered heroine of what's fashionable and what's successful in American cultural Christianity. Hooked on it. And you don't think you're hooked on it? I can tell you from experience. You go to a church that's hooked on pragmatism and you try to stop a program or change a program, you'll find out how ungodly God's people become when you try to take away their drugs. This is the world we live in today. This is the state of the church in America. Pragmatism is the inevitable fruit of man-centered thinking. Pragmatism basically says we do this or we do that, not because it's God's will or it's right, or because, we just do it because it works. In order to maintain the popularity, you need to do what keeps them coming. So the disciples are saying, Jesus, Jesus, you know, what you did last night, it worked. The crowds are here. And Jesus says, Let's go somewhere else. Urgency wasn't going to drive Jesus. Success wasn't going to drive Jesus. Popularity wasn't going to drive Jesus. Unfortunately, Jesus would be fired from most churches today. Jesus wasn't going to let close friends or large crowds set his agenda. The only agenda setter was his father. When Heather does homeschool with the kids, she has an agenda for them. So she has these little books and has their agenda. They love their agendas. Right, Noah? Okay. He's honest. Thank you. No hypocrisy. All right. She doesn't let them set their agenda. She doesn't say, here, y'all put in your little agendas or whatever you want to do. I mean, it'd be, it'd be video games at nine, 
Movies at 10, then video games at 11, lunch, then video games, whatever, if they set their own agendas. She doesn't let them set their agenda. She sets their agenda. Jesus only cared about his father's agenda. He wasn't going to let the disciples, the crowds, or anything else set his agenda. So what was his father's agenda? Well, I'm glad you asked. It brings us to our last point. Let us see and savor the truth that Jesus made prayer his priority. Therefore, he was able to resist public pressure and maintain preaching as his principal aim. Verse 38, and he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus' main task outside of the cross was, as we've stated over and over and over again in this series, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Preaching and teaching were his main aims. He had done that in Capernaum, and he would come back and he would even do it more in Capernaum later. But it was his father's will for him at this time to move on to other towns and other cities to preach the gospel. He says, that's why I came out. Out of what? Out of Peter's house? Out of Capernaum? Out of Judea? No, it's out of heaven. John 1, 9 says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus came from the Father to bring, tr- to bring truth, to bring the good news, the gospel to men. He came to declare it, to proclaim it, to preach it, to live it. When being tried by Pilate, Jesus told him, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It's John 18, 37. Jesus prayed and depended on his Father because he had a mission to complete, and he did it perfectly, John 17, 4. Again, this is Jesus praying to his Father in this particular passage. Verse 4 of John 17. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, not only was Jesus not going to be driven by urgency or success or popularity, he also wasn't going to be driven by man's needs. This is huge. There was a huge need going on there. There was all kinds of people. The crowds were there. There were demon-possessed people still in those crowds. There were, there were still sick people coming. There were some old people near death. There were children who were ill. There were all kinds of needs, serious needs. But for Jesus, needs never superseded preaching. Needs never superseded the preaching of the gospel. Meeting needs was good, but preaching the gospel was better. Jesus never let the good things squeeze out the greater things. For far greater than the felt needs of sickness, disease, or even demonic possession is the need of souls to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The disciples would eventually come to understand the priority of prayer and the ministry of the word. Acts chapter 6 great passage. They don't get it here, but eventually they'll get it. When you get to Acts chapter 6, you see, aha, they've got it because the needs begin to press, on, press in on the early church. You remember what the needs were? Some of the widows weren't getting the daily distribution of food. The Hellenistic widows were being discriminated against, and they come to the apostles, and they say, come on, we've got to deal with these problems. And they say, you know what? You find, you pull some men out from among yourselves and let them deal with the problems. We have to be about prayer and the ministry of the word. They understood their priority. Friends, the church must do the same today. There's needs all around us, and we can meet needs as the Lord gives us grace to meet those needs. But we can't meet them at the expense of preaching. The people in Capernaum had heard the gospel. Some had responded, many had not, and unfortunately, as it will become clear in Jesus' life, as it's already become clear as we've been going through this series 
Many people just come to Jesus to get something from him. They want their hurts healed, their bellies filled. But the gospel, no. The message of the gospel is offensive. It's a stench, to the, stench of death to those who are perishing. Why? Because it's the message of the cross. You see, ultimately, Jesus' popularity would vanish. Ultimately, the admiring crowds would become scorning crowds. That's because the gospel message that Jesus preached would drive him all the way to Calvary. The gospel message was all about the cross. The only way it became good news was because Jesus would go to the cross to absorb holy wrath of God against sinners. Laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice, that's what the gospel is all about. Jesus' ultimate act of submission, of obedience, of dependence upon his Father happened at Calvary. Philippians 2, 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus died once for all for sinners, forgiving sin and granting his own righteousness to those who belong to him, and rising again from the grave, conquering death, demonstrating that the atoning sacrifice had been accepted. So now all who are united to Christ by faith have died to sin and are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection was his message. Therefore, he was a man of great prayer. So even on that night, that night before the horrors of the cross came upon Jesus, we see Jesus what? On his knees, so earnest, so deep, so agonizing in prayer that that he was praying in a pool of his own sweat and blood. Nothing was going to keep Jesus from preaching the gospel and heading to the cross. That's why he was always in prayer. Friends, far be it that we should allow needs, no matter how great and pressing they are, to supersede the preaching of the gospel, to supersede our pointing people to the cross. Friends, far be it that we should allow urgency or success or popularity, no matter how great those things might get, to supersede the preaching of the gospel and the pointing of people to the cross. How do we avoid these pitfalls of falling into the pragmatism and falling into, these, into, into going after needs instead of preaching the gospel? Because it's very easy to fall into. Many a, many a man, many a church has. How do we avoid it? By being people of prayer, just like Jesus was. Friends, if our church isn't praying enough, we will drift. Which scares me, because our church doesn't pray enough. I don't pray enough. We need to be people of urgent prayer. We need to see and savor the truth that Jesus made prayer his priority. Therefore, he was able to resist public pressure and maintain preaching as his principal aim. Now, let me, let me draw this sermon kind of into a conclusion here. Let me bring it in for a landing. Because, friends, if you're here today and, and you solely think that this message is about encouraging you to have a more resolute determination to pray then I think you'll leave here with an insufficient message. Ultimately, Jesus' life wasn't simply a great example for us to follow, as if he were some divine role model for us. Should we follow Jesus' example? Yes. But Jesus came for more than that. He came as our substitute. I've already mentioned his substitutionary work on the cross. He took our death, taking our sin upon himself, as we discussed last week. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? His righteousness is credited to us. His righteousness, his perfect life. 
The life he lived perfectly unto his Father is credited to us. That means his whole life, including his prayer life, was substitutionary. He did everything perfectly, sinlessly on our behalf. So because we are united to him, Jesus' prayer life is counted as our prayer life. Jesus' prayer life never wavered. He never asked wrongly. He never fell asleep praying. He never failed or forgot to pray for someone or something. He had a perfect, sinless prayer life. And that perfect, sinless prayer life is counted to all who are united to him by faith. And because we are united to him by faith, not only is his perfect prayer life already credited to us, he is in the process of making us what we already are. Thus, we should see increasingly powerful and dependent praying happening in our life as we are being sanctified. As we are being made into his image. As we have said, Christians are in the process of becoming who they already are. We're already declared holy and just before God. And yet we are still becoming holy. Progressive sanctification. So the true Christian should have a growing prayer life. That should be the fruit of true Christianity. A growing prayer life. Jesus, our substitute, prayed perfectly. And more than that, more than that, He continues to pray for us as our high priest. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us? It's absolutely astounding. Well, what's he praying? What's he interceding for us? What's he he saying to the Father on our behalf? The Bible doesn't leave us without answers. We have this amazing prayer in John 17. This fantastic prayer in John 17, a record of, what Jesus, of Jesus praying for you and for me. And I don't have time to read that whole passage right now, but, but I want to give you some highlights from it. We can know what Jesus is praying for us. Number one, he's praying for our perseverance. John 17, 11, Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. He's praying for our success in spiritual warfare and our protection. John 17, verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We know that he is praying for our holiness, for our sanctification. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. We know that he's praying for our unity and our witness to the world. John 17, 21 says, he's praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We also know that Jesus is praying for us to see his glory. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. These things Jesus is praying for you and for me if you're a believer this morning. Friends, if you're a believer here this morning, the only reason that you or I will wake up tomorrow a believer or have any hope to persevere to the end is because Jesus is actively interceding for us. The only reason we can resist temptation and satanic influence at all is because Jesus is actively interceding for us. The only reason we are growing in our faith and are more like Christ now than we were five years ago is because Jesus is actively interceding on our behalf. The only reason we have any unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ is because Jesus is actively interceding on our behalf. The only only reason that we can have any witness in this dark world is because Jesus is interceding on our behalf. And the only reason we have any hope to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is because he himself is interceding on our behalf. That's glorious truth. But if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Christ alone, my friends, you have no such hope. 
Not yet, at least. My message for you this morning is really simple. It was the message Jesus was going to go to each town and preach. Repent and believe the gospel. It's that simple. Turn from your sin. Put all your hope in Christ alone for your salvation. The passage we just read a few minutes ago in Philippians goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. My friends, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, you will confess Jesus is Lord. The question is, will it be on this side of his second coming or on the other side? If it's on the other side, it's too late. So I urge you to come and to repent and believe today, for Jesus is our great high priest, interceding for all who put their hope in him. Hebrews 7.25, we read this earlier. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So friends, as you look at the life of Jesus, and we, we go walk through this life of Jesus, and we see great passages like this, and we see him modeling things like prayer for us, this isn't just an example for us to follow. Guess what? You're not going to follow it perfectly. You can't do WWJD. You can't accomplish it. You will fail. Your only hope is to have him stand in your place and accomplish what you couldn't accomplish. And in the process, if you've placed all your faith in him, He'll make you more like himself until that day he brings you to be with him in glory. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and conclude with a word of prayer. Heads bowed, eyes closed. We're going to pray and sing one song as we conclude this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. But it's only, you're only good and faithful to us because you love your son. You're good and faithful to your son. And we've been united to the son by faith. Otherwise, we would be under the sentence of death. And God, you are good even to unbelievers. Your common grace goes out, allows each and every single person in this world to breathe breath every day. Oh God, I pray that if there any, be any here this morning that are just living on common grace that you've given them to exist from day to day, that they would not take that for granted and they would understand that their life is in your hands and they need to come and repent before you, turn from their sin, and turn to Christ alone. That's my prayer this morning. If there be anyone here. So Father, we pray now as we conclude the service with the time of response that you'd hear our song, hear this singing May it glorify you. May we bring our tithes, our offerings, our prayer requests, whatever it might be. Lord, I pray that your spirit would lead us to respond as you see fit. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus, our high priest. Amen. Please stand if you would.